Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, February 8th, 2024, we feature articles on a phase three trial of resmetaram in NASH with liver fibrosis, an interleukin-23 receptor antagonist for plaque psoriasis, the neurovascular complications of F-solani meningitis, and on ocular gene therapy. A review article on coccidioidomycosis and histoplasmosis, a case report of a man with fever and headache after international travel, medicine and society articles on a physician attack on the FDA, and on being well while doing well, and perspective articles on the risks of normalizing parental vaccine hesitancy, on advanced HIV as a neglected disease, on the challenge of common chronic diseases, and on the saddest waste. A Phase three Randomized Control Trial of Resmetaram in NASH with Liver Fibrosis by Stephen Harrison from the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom and co-authors. Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, is a progressive liver disease with no approved treatment. Resmetaram is an oral, liver-directed, thyroid hormone receptor beta-selective agonist in development for the treatment of NASH with liver fibrosis. In this ongoing Phase three trial, 966 adults with biopsy-confirmed NASH and a fibrosis stage of F1b, F2, or F3. Stages range from F0, no fibrosis, to F4, cirrhosis, were randomly assigned to receive once daily resmetaram at a dose of 80 mg or 100 mg or placebo. NASH resolution with no worsening of fibrosis was achieved in 25.9% of the patients in the 80 mg resmetaram group and 29.9% of those in the 100 mg resmetaram group, as compared with 9.7% of those in the placebo group. Fibrosis improvement by at least one stage with no worsening of the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease activity score was achieved in 24.2% of the patients in the 80 mg resmetaram group and 25.9% of those in the 100 mg group, as compared with 14.2% of those in the placebo group. The change in low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels from baseline to week 24 was minus 13.6% in the 80 mg resmetaram group and minus 16.3% in the 100 mg group, as compared with 0.1% in the placebo group. Diarrhea and nausea were more frequent with resmetaram than with placebo. The incidence of serious adverse events was similar across trial groups, 10.9% in the 80 mg resmetaram group, 12.7% in the 100 mg group, and 11.5% in the placebo group. Both the 80 mg dose and the 100 mg dose of resmetaram were superior to placebo with respect to NASH resolution and improvement in liver fibrosis by at least one stage. 
Kenneth Cousy from the University of Florida, Gainesville, notes in an editorial that both NASH resolution and fibrosis improvement were more likely with resmetaram than with placebo. If conditional approval is given by the Food and Drug Administration, it may boost guideline recommendations to screen in primary care persons at high risk for NASH, especially to identify those with stage F2 or higher fibrosis, known as at-risk NASH. However, the trial also highlights the challenging nature of the disease. Although resmetaram treatment was successful, the placebo-subtracted effect of resmetaram was overall modest. 16.4 to 20.7 percentage points for NASH resolution and 10.2 to 11.8 percentage points for fibrosis, which means that approximately 2 of 10 patients treated will have NASH resolution and approximately 1 of 10 patients treated will have fibrosis improvement. Thus, most patients will need combination therapy with agents for obesity and type 2 diabetes recommended in guidelines. If resmetaram is approved to treat F2 to F3, moderate to advanced fibrosis, it is speculated that it will be a costly medication. How would resmetaram be used among less expensive medications that are effective for NASH and recommended in current guidelines for obesity or type 2 diabetes? In the U.S., at least 11.6 million people have NASH, and this figure is expected to nearly double during the next 15 years. The estimated prevalence of stage F2 or F3 liver fibrosis among patients with type 2 diabetes, a population with the highest risk of cirrhosis, is 12 to 15 percent, which means 4 to 5 million potential candidates for treatment just in the United States. The large number of persons needing treatment will open a debate about treatment access and about how to best monitor treatment response and when to discontinue resmetaram in patients who do not have a response in order to avoid futile long-term therapy. An oral interleukin-23 receptor antagonist peptide for plaque psoriasis by Robert Bissonnette from Innovaderm Research, Montreal, Canada, and co-authors. The use of monoclonal antibodies has changed the treatment of several immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, including psoriasis. However, these large proteins must be administered by injection. JNJ77242113 is a novel orally administered interleukin-23 receptor antagonist peptide that selectively blocks interleukin-23 signaling and downstream cytokine production. In this Phase II dose-finding trial, 255 patients with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis were randomly assigned to receive once or twice daily oral administration of JNJ77242113 or placebo for 16 weeks. The primary endpoint was a reduction from baseline of at least 75% in the psoriasis area and severity index, PASI score, at week 16, 
PASI scores range from 0 to 72, with higher scores indicating greater extent or severity of psoriasis. At week 16, the percentages of patients with a PASI-75 response were higher among those in the peptide groups, 37%, 51%, 58%, 65%, and 79% in the 25 mg once daily, 25 mg twice daily, 50 mg once daily, 100 mg once daily, and 100 mg twice daily groups, respectively than among those in the placebo group, 9%, a finding that showed a significant dose-response relationship. The most common adverse events included COVID-19 in 12% of the patients in the placebo group and in 11% of those across the peptide dose groups, and nasopharyngitis in 5% and 7%, respectively. The incidence of adverse events was generally similar across the groups and did not seem to increase with higher doses of the peptide. After 16 weeks of once or twice daily oral administration, treatment with the interleukin-23 receptor antagonist peptide JNJ7724213 showed greater efficacy than placebo in patients with moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. In an editorial, Joel Gelfand from the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine, Philadelphia, writes that in the study by Bissonnette and colleagues, JNJ7724213 showed a dose-response relationship with the highest dose, 100 milligrams twice daily, resulting in a PASI-90 response in 60% of patients which, if confirmed by larger studies, would be similar to the most effective injectable biologics. Moreover, there was no evidence of a relation between the peptide dose and the occurrence of side effects. However, two occurrences of infection, COVID-19 and an infected cyst, and a suicide attempt were reported as serious adverse events. Larger trials will be needed to determine whether such events are attributable to chance, psoriasis itself, or inhibition of interleukin-23 signaling. Furthermore, JNJ7724213 needs to be taken on an empty stomach, and therefore effectiveness may be lower in real-world settings. The response may also be diminished by obesity. For example, In the highest-dose group, 100% of the patients with a body mass index of less than 25 had a PASI-75 response, as compared with 68% of those with a BMI of 30 or higher. The progress made with regard to skin clearance in patients with psoriasis is tempered by the relative lack of progress in understanding the effect of these treatments on preventing the development of psoriatic arthritis, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and premature death, conditions that substantially affect patients with moderate to severe psoriasis. The next generation of trials will need to have a randomized design, active comparators, larger sample sizes, and longer durations in order to determine which treatment targets, if any, prevent the onset of psoriatic arthritis and cardiometabolic disease. 
Such effects will restore to normal not only the skin, but also the patient's overall health and lifespan. Neurovascular Complications of Iatrogenic Fusarium Solani Meningitis by Nora Strong from the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston and co-authors. A multinational outbreak of nosocomial fusarium meningitis occurred among immunocompetent patients who had undergone surgical procedures involving epidural anesthesia that took place between January 1 and May 13, 2023, at two clinics in Matamoros, Tamaulipas, Mexico. The outbreak affected primarily young, otherwise healthy patients and included both residents of Mexico and those from the United States who traveled for medical tourism. On May 17th, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued a Health Alert Network advisory because of this healthcare-associated outbreak. On the basis of lists from the Mexican government, 185 U.S. residents from 23 states were determined to have potentially been exposed. Among these 185 patients, nine suspected cases, symptoms in the absence of CSF test results, 14 probable cases, abnormal CSF without positive fungal culture or PCR, and 10 confirmed cases, fungus detected in CSF or tissue, were identified. Among the patients with probable or confirmed cases, 12 deaths have occurred. Severe complications and deaths occurred primarily as a result of severe neurovascular conditions, including aneurysm, intracranial hemorrhage, stroke, and hydrocephalus. The pathogen showed a predilection for invasion of the vertebrobasilar arterial system, which resulted in brainstem infarction as well as in vascular rupture that led to devastating hemorrhage. Culture of the mold was possible only from tissue samples obtained at autopsy, and susceptibility testing suggested that the organism was resistant to all clinically available antifungal medications except for one currently in development. Ocular gene therapy in a patient with dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa by Ariana tovar Vettencourt from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, Florida. Dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa is a rare genetic disease caused by damaging variants in COL7A1, which encodes type 7 collagen. Blistering and scarring of the ocular surface develop, potentially leading to blindness. Traditionally, standard care for patients with dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa has consisted primarily of supportive care and wound management. Baremagene gepropavic, BVEC, is a replication-deficient herpes simplex virus type 1-based gene therapy engineered to deliver functional human type 7 collagen. These authors report the case of a 13-year-old boy with dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa complicated by recurrent cicatrizing conjunctivitis. The patient received ophthalmic administration of BVEC, which was associated with improved visual acuity after surgery. The patient was previously deemed legally blind. 
Treatment with BVEC was followed by correction of visual acuity in the treated eye to 2025. Coccidioidomycosis and histoplasmosis in immunocompetent persons. A review article by John Galgiani from the College of Medicine, Tucson, Arizona, and Carol Kaufman from the University of Michigan Medical School, Ann Arbor. Of the roughly 150,000 recognized fungal species, and perhaps the several million not yet identified, few cause disease in humans. Fewer do so in persons not overtly immunosuppressed, and only a handful are localized to specific geographic regions. Of these endemic mycoses, histoplasmosis and coccidioidomycosis are the ones most commonly encountered in the Americas. The fungi causing these two endemic mycoses are dimorphic in that they grow as mold in the environment and assume a different structure when causing infection in the host. Although both fungi are dimorphic, their resultant structures differ dramatically and they occupy very different niches in the environment. Histoplasma is distributed throughout the world, but the areas with the highest concentration of cases of histoplasmosis remain the Midwestern United States and Central America, where it thrives in soil with a high nitrogen content. In contrast, coccidioides is most prominent in arid regions, especially those of Arizona and California. Coccidioidomycosis and histoplasmosis also differ with regards to initial signs and symptoms of infection and the course of illness, the potential for and frequency of various complications, and the general approach to diagnosis and treatment. It is hoped that a fuller appreciation of these differences will help clinicians understand the important health issues posed by these two endemic mycoses. This review focuses on the distribution, acquisition, clinical manifestations, and underlying pathogenesis of the two diseases in immunocompetent persons. Diagnostic methods and management are briefly discussed as well. A 39-year-old man with fever and headache after international travel. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Edward Ryan and co-authors. A 39-year-old man was evaluated during the summer because of fever with shaking chills, headache, and fatigue after returning from travel in East Africa. During the patient's two-week trip, he had been on a safari in Tanzania, but had not had any contact with animals. He reported that he had received mosquito bites, especially during the first days of the trip. He had eaten cooked shrimp and lobster and a small amount of raw tuna. On the second to last day of the trip, nausea, vomiting, and non-bloody diarrhea developed. On the last day of the trip, the patient had fatigue, but he felt well enough to travel home the next day. On the night the patient returned home to Massachusetts, he began to have a fever, along with shaking chills, diffuse headache, and lower back pain. Four days after returning from the trip, he presented to the emergency department, where he reported recurrent fevers accompanied by blurry vision, ongoing weakness and anorexia, and nausea with diarrhea but without vomiting. 
Laboratory evaluation revealed several striking abnormalities, including thrombocytopenia, elevated blood levels of aspartate aminotransferase and alanine aminotransferase, hyperbilirubinemia, mild renal dysfunction, a low haptoglobin level, and hematuria, 3+, with only few red blood cells noted on urinalysis. Most cases of malaria diagnosed in the U.S. occur during the U.S. summer months among patients who have traveled to sub-Saharan Africa. The majority of cases are diagnosed in patients who did not receive chemoprophylaxis. P. falciparum malaria can be rapidly fatal. When malaria is considered in the differential diagnosis, an evaluation for malaria needs to be performed quickly and the treatment approach usually depends on the laboratory test results. This patient's rapid antigen test was positive for both the P. falciparum antigen and the panmalarial antigen, findings that indicate infection with P. falciparum. A physician attack on the FDA. Will the Supreme Court reduce access to mifepristone? A Medicine and Society by Katie Watson from Northwestern University, Chicago. Thanks to medical advances in abortion care, today a woman who is 11 weeks pregnant or less, as more than 80% of people who obtain abortions are, can safely complete a medication abortion at home. In any state where abortion provision is legal, a woman can get mifepristone and mesoprostol pills in person, and some states give her the option of a telemedicine appointment and receiving the pills by mail. But options will become more restricted for pregnant people if the Supreme Court rules in favor of anti-abortion physicians who, in an attack on science and regulatory authority, have sued the FDA demanding that it revoke its approval and regulation of mifepristone. Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, AHM, versus FDA attempts to go further than Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which allowed states to ban abortion. The AHM plaintiffs are trying to reach into states that have chosen to allow abortion and take away one of the drugs used in a method that was prescribed by clinicians for 492,210 U.S. patients who received abortion care in non-hospital facilities in 2020. 53% of all U.S. patients who had an abortion that year. The AHM plaintiffs are four individual physicians and four anti-abortion physician membership groups. The AHM plaintiffs refer to medication abortion as chemical abortion throughout their court filings, which is like calling ibuprofen chemical headache relief. This use of rhetorical scare tactics, in this author's view, is one of many indicators that the plaintiffs aren't functioning as physicians in this lawsuit. Rather, they are trying to leverage their licensure to reduce abortion access in a radical remaking of medicine. Being well while doing well. Distinguishing necessary from unnecessary discomfort in training. A Medicine and Society article on medical training today by Lisa Rosenbaum, a national correspondent for the journal. During his internal medicine clerkship, 
Dr. A dove into tasks medical students often undertake. Getting outside records, faxing forms, updating patients' primary care physicians. But he sensed that some of his peers disapproved of his willingness to engage in such scut work. Believing that these tasks weren't educational, fellow students suggested that by leaning into them instead of setting boundaries, he was reinforcing problematic norms. Dr. A saw the work as integral to both his education and patient care, but he found it difficult to challenge their perceptions. If you disagree with someone who's trying to set such boundaries, he explained, you're seen as part of a toxic culture and not supporting people in their wellness. Several educators around the U.S. told Dr. Rosenbaum's stories, revealing a similar dynamic. Once routine aspects of education or training are now deemed potentially harmful. But tension between once acceptable workplace demands and well-being is hardly unique to medicine. This tension seems particularly salient in fields that are theoretically committed to a broader social cause. Analyzing how perceived harm among employees is crippling progressive organizations, Maurice Mitchell, National Director of the Working Families Party, notes that leaders of social justice organizations are finding their jobs untenable as workers consistently describe workspaces as toxic or problematic. For medicine, an enterprise currently balancing a crisis in well-being with the requisite rigors of training and evolving workplace demands, perhaps the biggest and most relevant expectation Mitchell debunks is the belief that one's mental, physical, and spiritual health is the responsibility of the organization or collective space. Mitchell writes that discomfort is part of the human condition and a prerequisite for learning. Violence and oppression are to be avoided, but not discomfort. The ability to discern the difference is a form of emotional maturity we should encourage. Because the ability to make such distinctions is also critical for trainees, medicine faces a bind. Our educational systems have clear shortcomings. But maintaining our commitment to excellence while remedying our failures requires distinguishing unnecessary harms from necessary discomforts. So why has it become so hard to make these distinctions? The Risks of Normalizing Parental Vaccine Hesitancy A Perspective by David Higgins and Sean O'Leary from the Children's Hospital Colorado, Aurora The algorithms that shape our media diets have been promoting the idea that parental hesitancy about routine childhood vaccines has become commonplace in the United States since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Misinformation and disinformation spread online by anti-vaccination activists have led some people to believe that most U.S. parents don't want their children to be vaccinated. The voices of prominent anti-vaccination figures keep this false narrative on the front page, and casual conversations with other parents, relatives, and friends can leave people wondering whether having their children vaccinated is the wrong thing to do. The data, however, are undeniable. 
Apart from important challenges with influenza and COVID-19 vaccination, the vast majority of parents in the United States continue to choose to have their children vaccinated, according to the vaccination schedule recommended by the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics. These authors believe vaccine hesitancy shouldn't be normalized when it is not the norm. Most parents don't hesitate to have their children vaccinated, and suggesting otherwise is inaccurate and potentially harmful. Perceived social norms, what people view as typical behavior in a group, powerfully influence their health-related intentions and behavior. Misperceptions about the prevalence of parental vaccine hesitancy in society can lead to adverse changes in vaccination-related intentions and actions among clinicians, policymakers, and parents. What should be normalized is parents confidently having their children vaccinated. Despite all the attention-grabbing misinformation out there, that is still, in fact, the norm. Advanced HIV as a Neglected Disease, a perspective by Nathan Ford from the World Health Organization, Geneva, and co-authors. Overall, HIV is not a neglected disease. Tens of billions of dollars have been invested in scaling up access to prevention and treatment. Although treatment coverage has increased substantially in recent years, any associated reductions in AIDS-related deaths have been smaller and slower than expected. The proportion of people with advanced HIV disease, defined by a CD4 count of less than 200 cells per cubic millimeter, remains high. It is estimated that more than 4 million people have advanced HIV disease, and each year more than 600,000 of them are expected to die. In the past decade, advanced HIV has become neglected, with limited attention paid to either consistently using existing tools or finding new tools for preventing AIDS-related deaths. As defined by the WHO, the neglected tropical diseases comprise 20 diseases and disease groups that cause devastating health, social, and economic consequences among the world's poorest people. They are defined by a lack of sufficient resources for and inadequate research attention to prevention, screening, diagnosis, and treatment. The same shortcomings now apply to advanced HIV disease. Neglect of advanced HIV disease is an unintended consequence of the global shift in objectives from treating the sickest people to treating all who are infected. Driving the neglect of advanced HIV is a shrinking ability to diagnose the problem. These authors believe donors should continue supporting CD4 testing for diagnosing advanced HIV and guiding diagnosis and treatment of opportunistic infections. For patients with advanced HIV, medicine urgently needs better tools focused on the diseases that are confirmed to be the most prevalent in the relevant setting so that we can respond effectively to the main causes of illness and death. Addressing the Challenge of Common Chronic Diseases A View from the FDA A Perspective by Hader Warwick and co-authors from the Food and Drug Administration, Silver Spring, Maryland 
Of the ten most common causes of death in the United States, seven are chronic diseases. Heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, and chronic lung, liver, and kidney diseases. These common chronic diseases are partly responsible for the recent startling decrease in life expectancy in the United States. Such diseases seldom occur in isolation. 58% of U.S. adults have two or more chronic diseases. Even among younger adults, those 20 to 29 years of age, more than one in five have multiple chronic diseases. There are wide disparities in the prevalence of chronic diseases and in associated outcomes for members of marginalized racial and ethnic groups, people from low-income households, and members of rural and tribal communities. For example, rural Americans have a higher prevalence of common chronic diseases and higher age-adjusted rates of death from such diseases than do residents of metropolitan areas. A gap that has widened considerably over the past two decades. The position of the Food and Drug Administration as a regulatory, scientific, and public health agency grants us opportunities to support the development of effective and accessible interventions for preventing and treating common chronic diseases, and to promote the appropriate use of approved therapies. The FDA's remit spans drugs, biologic products. Medical devices, food, and tobacco products. With collaboration among stakeholders, the FDA can improve the way in which evidence is generated and interventions are developed and implemented to help address common chronic diseases. The saddest waste: disability, heredity, and the artist's eye. A perspective by Perry Class from New York University Grossman School of Medicine. Joaquin Soroya triumphed at the 1900 Universal Exposition in Paris. The Spanish painter's Triste Herencia, Sad Inheritance, won both the Grand Prix and a Medal of Honor. After getting him nominated to the French Legion of Honor, it won another medal at the National Exhibition in Madrid a year later. Recently, Master of Light. A 2022 exhibition in Milan aimed to acquaint the public with Soroya's work. Triste Herencia, a very large canvas, had a wall to itself. The painting shows a group of more than 20 naked boys swimming in the sea, supervised by a black-cloaked monk. In the foreground are boys who haven't yet entered the water, some clearly disabled. Two are using crutches to navigate across the sand, and another is apparently blind, holding out his hand for guidance. At least one child in the water is also using a crutch. All the boys look sickly and scrawny, their bodies pallid against the golden brown sand. But why sad inheritance? Soroya's original title for the painting was "Niños de Placer," children of pleasure. And the implication of both titles is that these unhealthy, institutionalized children had been left disabled owing to the sins of their parents. That is most likely that they suffered from the effects of congenital syphilis. Soroya did not understand that he was painting post-polio paralysis. He saw the boy's problem as a moral one. 
Soroya's view of his subjects and his intended social protest remind us of the ways that medicine has often assigned blame to patients or their parents over the centuries. The painting also suggests a larger social moral about the marginalization of disabled children. Yet the painting allows those marginalized children a moment of joy. He was capturing them during their recreation, their time to be children, between the sea and the sky. In our images in clinical medicine, a 66-year-old woman with primary Sjogren's syndrome presented with a one-month history of lower abdominal pain and urinary urgency. CT of the abdomen showed bladder wall thickening and hydronephrosis in both kidneys. Histopathological analysis showed lymphocytic and plasmacytic infiltration, ulceration, and fibrin deposition of the bladder wall, as well as lymphoid follicle formation. A diagnosis of interstitial cystitis associated with Sjogren's syndrome, a rare extraglandular feature of the autoimmune condition, was made. In another image, a 44-year-old man presented with acute vision loss and pain in the left eye. The symptoms had started after he had passed out for three hours in a position that put pressure on his left eye. Before losing consciousness, he had taken insomnia medications and consumed alcohol. On physical examination, a relative afferent pupillary defect and an absence of light perception were found in the left eye. Proptosis and complete ophthalmoplegia of the left eye were also present, shown in a video at NEJM.org. A diagnosis of ischemic retinopathy and choroidopathy owing to prolonged orbital compression was made. Historically, this condition has been known as Saturday night retinopathy because of its association with the use of alcohol and sedating substances. There is no consensus on the management of the condition. The patient received treatment with systemic high-dose glucocorticoids and topical agents to prevent elevation of intraocular pressure. However, during follow-up by telephone four months after the initial assessment, the patient reported that he remained blind in his left eye. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our podcast. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.